Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Sean Yom. Sean is Associate Professor of Political Science at Temple University and also Senior Fellow in the Middle East Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Sean has written extensively on a range of issues pertaining to Middle East politics, regional security, including a recent book from Resilience to Revolution, How Foreign Interventions Destabilize the Middle East, which was published by Columbia University Press. He's done a great deal of work on the region, and I'm really excited to welcome him onto the podcast today. Thank you for joining us, Sean. Oh, my pleasure, Simon. I'm really excited to, to talk to you about your, your career and the work that you've been doing. So, so to kick off, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in Middle East politics and how you got involved in, in this career, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a question I actually get quite a bit from uh, my students. Right, okay. Uh, so <laughs> I, I got uh, interested in Middle East politics in a, in a fairly uh, roundabout way. Um, this was something that was never... I think at the forefront of my thinking growing up uh, in the United States as uh, a child of immigrants uh, from East Asia. And what happened was that when I uh, went throughout my high school years and then entered college, uh, the study of international affairs uh, really picked up interest in terms of what was on my mind and how I was linking uh, current events with bigger ideas out there, ideas about revolution and democracy and elections um, and the like. Uh, when I entered university, um, I did so um, at the very tail end of the 1990s. And so that meant that uh, living in America, uh, my junior year, my third year of university would be defined by 9-11. Sure, um, and, yeah. uh, you know, I went to a university um not uh, too far away from uh, New York City. So, uh, and I had a sister, uh, have a sister who still lives and works in um, New York. And so uh, for for many of us, um, I think on the East Coast of America at the time and with connections to New York or who had known people who were involved in the attacks, um, you know, those, those strikes, those terrorist strikes, struck a, a profoundly deep nerve uh, in many of us. At sure, the time, yeah. I was already studying um, international affairs. Um, and uh, that that is what generally instigated me to um, recalibrate my studies more onto the topic of uh, the Middle East. Um, I, at the time as well, uh, not rather not long after uh, the... Uh, the, the, the violence of the Second Intifada um, in Palestine began escalating pretty dramatically. And I had a number of Palestinian friends at university who were personally affected by violence there as well, uh, as their families were in uh, the West Bank and were often um, frontline um, witnesses to some of the, the, the worst things happening at the time. So a combination of these personal observations and my own friendships and just meandering through the intellectual maze of university education <laughs> yeah. with, a, with a political science major uh, made me want to learn everything about the Middle East, uh, which I tried to do. And then sure. that quickly facilitated my entry into graduate school right after uh, university. Um, and there I focused on, um, I decided to focus on the broader question of uh, democracy and authoritarianism in the Middle East and of the role 
played by great powers um, like Britain historically and uh, the United States um, today in shaping the landscape of regional politics and of the struggles we see in, in many locales by social forces in advancing their goals of a, I would say, a just democratic political orders. Fantastic. That's just really interesting to hear. Going back just briefly, if I may, to, to the time before you, you went to university, what was the what was the driving force behind this this intellectual curiosity in international affairs? I mean what what prompted that interest? Uh, yeah, that's uh, another great question and not one that um, actually I, I get a lot since that's that's um, kind of engages my distant memories of uh, <laughs> of high school. So um, in high school, I was a, a very competitive um, debater. And, right. Um, you know, in, in the U.S., like in many countries, uh, we have a very highly structured, highly competitive system of speech and debate at the high school level. And some of the events I competed in required a very, very deep knowledge of um, of not just domestic politics in the U.S., but also international politics. And I remember a number of speeches and uh, um, rather speech and debate tournaments that I had participated in and speeches I had done uh, as part of my my event in the the world of speech and debate um, in this competitive field that required me to do a lot of instant analysis and research on on just current events that that just no 16-year-old should have any right knowing anything about <laughs> in America in 1997 or 8. Uh, everything from the Chinese-Taiwanese dispute across the strait to um, what was then, you know, more relevant than I suppose it is now, uh, the, the Good Friday Accords and, um, you know, the, the, the reconciliation process in Northern Ireland. Uh, to uh, the the, the guerrilla movement in southern Mexico. I mean, just things that um, I think were dominating headlines for at various moments. The, the Kosovo intervention in ninety in, in ninety eight ninety nine, uh, but uh, that I just quickly had to learn more about. And I think a lot of these repeated exposures to uh, segments of the international world that uh, were not very resonant in the minds of many high schoolers in America at the time got me interested enough in international politics that I want to make um, much of my university education focused on that. Um, and I did. And so one of the interesting things um, that, that that I always found uh, coming into university was that I, I, I went to a university, um, it was a Brown University, that had a very open curriculum um, and did not require you to have a, a major coming in. Um, and while many uh, American universities don't require you to have a major coming in, they usually require you to declare something by the end of your first year. Yeah. Um, Brown lets you declare as late as your, um, I think, beginning of your third year. Uh, it's a very flexible school. You can create your own major. You can do interdisciplinary studies. And I, I came in from day one just wanting to do nothing but study um, international politics. And <laughs> right. I, I, and, and so I was very focused on, on that goal uh, from the start. Um, and then that, and that, I think that, that that focus is what allowed me to see the Middle East um, and of specific 
issues within the region as so very relevant um, to, to, to my academic and intellectual interests early on. And I think that all facilitated how um, I, I became a researcher in the field and, <laughs> yeah, I guess how why we're both uh, speaking on Skype today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sure. So, so you moved into the into graduate study. You started focusing more on the the role of great powers, these external actors, and uh, and and that took you where in the region then? Uh, so, yeah, it's an, another fantastic question. So, you know, the the the, the study of. I think great power influence and uh, hegemony and how that shapes domestic politics in the Middle East. I mean, that you could, I think, apply that question to almost any country and get a very interesting answer. Yeah. Um, and initially, I, I, I think I, I, I was exploring countries that were quite popular at the time, countries um, like uh, Morocco and Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, while these are still countries which I, I conduct research on and, and which are never far from my mind, uh, I would I eventually gravitated to a handful of countries that uh, just at the time in the in, in the early to mid 2000s, at least, were not considered to be hot countries in terms of what people were studying and how they were connecting the dots in terms of answering the question. Uh, what does this country's colonial past and what does this country's post-colonial foreign policy tell us about the stability and the trajectory of this country's domestic politics today? How stable is it? How democratic is it? How durable is its non-democratic government? And how quickly can we see um, a, a you know, an outburst of civic unrest, for instance, unfolding? And so the countries I picked were um, were, uh, were countries like Jordan and Kuwait, uh, Tunisia. Um, and uh, and actually historical Iran as a revolution as as a as a pre-revolutionary Iran as an historical comparison point. So I would say it was just um, sustained exposure to the region that got me to see all countries as viable cases. And then I gravitate to countries that not a lot of people are doing much research on because at the time no one thought that Tunisia would ever be a vanguard of democracy in the <laughs> yeah. Arab world. Um, when I did uh, my field work there, it was one of the most difficult places to do field work in. I mean, it was it was quiet, almost too quiet. Uh, there was no free speech or discourse. And so getting answers out of people were uh, just on basic political questions was um, like pulling teeth. It was so incredibly difficult for understandable reasons. Um, you know, similarly at the time when people talked of Kuwait, it was always about post-war reconstruction and relations with Iraq and, you know, and oil politics, never about how the Kuwaiti state was built up from the start in the last decade or two of the British protectorate period and how that protectorate period shaped Kuwait's outlook today. Um, and in Jordan, no one really, no one ever thought that, at least in 2000, in the 2003, that Jordan would be integral to, to you know, the next two or three major wars in the region, that Jordan would be host yeah. to the next two great refugee flows in the region, the Iraqis in the late 2000s and the Syrians uh, five years later or rather eight years later. So essentially, well, yeah, um, I, I became interested in these countries that uh, no one thought would be very relevant now um, or 
you know, interesting now. Um, and so little did I know that the, the, the countries which I was looking at back then, which were kind of low risk, moderate reward countries would actually be pretty integral countries to get sure, to know now. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm happy I made those choices because I mean, <laughs> sure. the topics that we look at today, like sectarianism or revolution or civil wars, I mean, you know, re relevant to virtually everyone who lives in the region. Um, but if you're, say, a specialist on Jordan, you you have a uh, a, a um, an unfortunately, but nonetheless useful kind of front row seat to looking at all these different events. If you're gazing at a place like Syria or Iraq, for instance. Yeah, of course. And I'd like to go deeper into into Jordan shortly. And I also want to talk a little bit about the the comparativist in you, if I may. But before we do that, Sean, what are your recollections from from that time? Then, I mean, you you touched on on Tunisia as a as a case where it was difficult to to really get people talking because of the 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 real sense of authoritarianism. But 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 what else do you recall from that period of fieldwork? Yeah, so um, it, it was a period of fieldwork starting in two thousand five that. Uh, to, to my mind, both emotionally and intellectually relinked all the things I was interested in in the region in terms of struggles for democracy, um, the, um, the, the, the role of the outside world and of foreign powers and of uh, the West, essentially, um, and of questions of domestic stability uh, and uh, kind of internal unrest versus democratic breakthroughs. So in 2005, for instance, I was that summer... Um, I was in Beirut uh, studying at the American University of Beirut, uh, just finishing up my, my studies in Arabic and brushing up on my language skills. And that summer, that summer 2005, was the summer right after spring 2005 when um, Rafiq uh, Hariri was assassinated. Uh, and that had caused a spiraling. Um, uh, escalating uh, series of uh, tit-for-tat yeah. kind of protests of assassinations of other well-known opposition figures in Lebanon, of journalists, uh, of figures affiliated with anti-Syrian stances, well-known, um, very well-known um, media uh, per personages which were well-known to the Lebanese media. Uh, and so it was a very tense time. Uh, the question uh, that summer, I remember... Uh, just walking around Beirut that everyone kept talking about questions like, uh, you know, what is next in terms of how we relate to Syria? Uh, will there, you know, we don't want another civil conflict. So what will the outside world do? What will the UN do? What yeah. will the United States do? What will France do? And, you know, will Syria really honor our borders um, and our new and, and, and the new kind of relationship that some of us would like to have with Syria, which is not one of uh, protectorate and protector, um, um, uh, or dominant, perhaps a better word for, for it would be subordinate and dominator, but, uh, more of, uh, as, as a sovereign equal, um, national state. Uh, and so, I mean, then that was just simply summer 2005. And even during that two or three month period, I was there where people were, these questions dominated the public sphere. Uh, there was also a real sense of public insecurity because one or two more bombings and assassinations occurred when I was there um, in in very well populated areas of Beirut, if I recall. Um, the next summer, 2006, um, I had uh, begun field work, formal field work in Jordan, and that summer, uh, being in Amman, um, 
was a summer where you know, you, you know, we 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 all could uh, you know get instant news just from uh, the next day over in Lebanon yeah. about the war, how the war between Hezbollah and Israel was affecting Lebanon. That the, I remember the day that the Israeli Air Force um, bombed uh, the Beirut International Airport, which temporarily stopped most flights and caused uh, the United States government to give evacuation orders to pretty much every American who was in Lebanon at at the time that was not there for some important security or diplomatic reason. Um, And it was, so it was, it was quite, um, it was quite, I think, sobering uh, being in the region uh, just at the start of my field work in countries where I, I, I was seeking out people political elites, but also leaders of civil society and um, historical personalities whose names I had seen pop up in the past in civil conflicts or in major political agreements that were willing to speak to me about their firsthand experience and shaping the lineaments of their political order um, and seeking them out just as a researcher from America doing a PhD thesis and every day encountering reminders that this could be a war zone or we were living next to a war zone, an active conflict um, uh, arena. Uh, and this is not to mention you know, that this was at the very start, at least in 2006, of the Iraqi refugee uh, crisis there. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so, yeah, and so this was, and this seems like so long ago. Um, and, I mean, it was so long ago. It was 13, I think 13 or 14 years ago. Um, but, you know, I, I think about the evolution of even that part of the region today and think about if I, I was just in Jordan this summer and the questions in, everyone mind, in, in everyone's minds were no less stricken with crisis and overtones of, of, of alarm, questions about, for instance, Will the deal of century mean that we will have another crisis of identity regarding the fate of Palestinian refugees in Jordan? Or a question like, uh, you know, now that Syria is finally being put back together, what do we do with the over one million Syrian refugees residing in Jordan who are uh, legitimately scared and rightfully so about returning to a country that has a that's ruled by a regime not known for its compunction would be the most generous way I can put it. Um, and yet it's straining a country's uh, right now with no oil, no water, very few other natural resources, one of the smallest economies and populations in the Middle East, a virtually landlocked kingdom that has been at various points of its history propped up by outside powers um, or otherwise likely will have collapsed. What do we do with a situation where all those refugees who have a right not to return to a home where they might be killed out of vengeance by a regime uh, do in a kingdom that can no longer afford to host them? Um, and so, you know, I would never have imagined uh, these questions still being relevant to sure. Jordan, yeah. um today. Uh, and in 2006, it, I, you know, it, it, I think a lot of naive researchers like myself could be forgiven for thinking wow, we're living in a, a once-in-a-generation moment where the, the reverberations of 9-11 and the U.S. invasion of Iraq and so forth still are with us today. And, you know, that clearly these questions, I think, will be recurrent themes and the way that we approach the Middle East, um, you know, for not just this generation, but for the next few. Yeah, yeah, I, I fear that you're, you're probably right there. Um, Sean, you've written extensively on Jordan, 
what is it aside from the the comparative uh, case study selection that you talked about earlier what what is it that that piqued your interest about Jordan so much rather than Tunisia or or Kuwait for example yeah no that's uh, that's a great question so uh, you are absolutely right um, I've you know a lot of countries pop up in my book for instance and often pop up in my research um, uh, but I think Jordan is the country that has captured my interest the most. I'm interested in Jordan because um, it it encapsulates all the themes that I think many researchers of the Middle East tend to engage uh, or have to engage as a matter of practice, and which intellectually excite me uh, to my uh, my my academic core. And all those issues I think can be listed as the following: um, a how does the past affect the present? So in Jordan's case, how does a colonial past, a very interesting, understated, but seminal colonial past uh, affect the present insofar that you know next year will be Jordan's centennial, uh, having been created in 1921, um, largely through the diplomatic machinations of um, colonial secretary Winston Churchill and uh, uh, Britain's interest in the region at the time in the post-World War I era of the European condominium um, in the in the Near East area, uh, east of the Suez Canal and north of the Arabian Peninsula. And so that theme of how the past affects the present requires a lot of intimate historical knowledge about, say, British imperial policies and um, even mundane things like tax decisions and land reform policies and engagements with local tribes in the 1930s and 1920s and 1930s that, uh, for me, are just inherently interesting uh, because they require you to take a hard look into the past and to unpack, whether it's through historical monographs or archival research or just through general, I think, social engagement, to unpack and to truly respect the ways that imperial legacies still haunt um, the states that are the survivors of post-colonial history today. Um, and then we get to a second thing, which is that putting aside the colonial past and, you know, and, 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 and records of imperial creation and, and rule and so forth, how, do, how, do, how did statehood, the transition to statehood, the brutal, rapid, and often unforgiven transition to independence and sovereignty in the post-World War II era, how did these tumultuous years of, of, of opposition-driven driven crises, of weak rulers struggling to impose their authority in very fragile states whose borders were still considered to be quite haphazardly drawn by French and British uh, cartographers, how did these early years and decades, the 1950s, 1940s through the 1950s and early 60s shaped the institutions and I think the the overall institutional projects that these uh, states still have today. So looking at cases like Jordan, for instance, this question has profound importance uh, because many of the strategies that uh, the the monarchical regime and overall state apparatus of Jordan. Many of the policies we see today, which are the bread and butter of its survival in terms of relying quite heavily 
on Jordanian tribes as opposed to the majority of the national population, the, the national non-refugee population, which are Palestinians, either refugees or mostly descendants of earlier refugees who are now Jordanian citizens. Um, this heavy reliance upon Jordanian tribes to staff every echelon of the Jordanian state, the civil service, the army, the security services, the police, the intelligence apparatus, um, the royal court, the ministries, the bureaucracy, this, this almost ethnocratic reliance upon tr Jordanian tribes and not Palestinians, despite the fact that they would later comprise the majority of the population, that strategy, which is uh, very economically inefficient, uh, which is uh, I, which, which has at various times tilted Jordan on the brink of, of civil conflict, and in one case did precipitate it in 1970, and uh, today has re resulted in profound and painful social scars and cleavages in the fabric of Jordanian society, they all have their origins in this early period of post-colonial consolidation where you have, in the Jordanian case, an unsteady monarchy trying to anchor itself in some semblance of, of a social foundation uh, in an era where it faces threats on all fronts, on the regional front, on the internal front, uh, in military conspiracies and so forth. Britain essentially pulling out the Middle East at that point. And the decisions they make 70 years ago are the decisions that still on a daily basis uh, dictate allocations of resources in Jordanian politics and in Jordanian political life today. Um, and so that would be the second thing. And finally, I think the third thing, that's, and the final thing would be looking at how the outside world and large states and great powers just shape the quotidian rhythms of everyday social or political life uh, in countries in the Middle East. And, and, and Jordan, this is true in every single decade since the 1950s and 60s. So whether it's a regional conflict instigated by outside powers like the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, or it's a civil conflict um, that's escalated through international involvements, such as a Syrian civil war recently, or between 1975 and 1990, the Lebanese civil war, or whether it is a resolution of territorial conflict uh, between warring parties, such as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether it is a peace treaty with a neighbor like Israel and Jordan, uh, the, the accord they struck in 1994, or the sheer fact that you have a country in the Jordanian case which is reliant upon foreign aid and of concessional lending by generous donors like the World Bank. Um, and funders like the International Monetary Fund um, and other, uh, and not just the United States, which is by far the greatest foreign patron of Jordan, but other major aid donors like the EU and the United Kingdom, um, Japan, Germany, and so forth. Uh, all the, the, the sheer fiscal reliance upon the outside world in this particular case means that if you are, say, in Jordan, and you want uh, to take a drink of, of, of tap water, uh, for instance, of, uh, and you want to turn on the municipal tap in your house or apartment in Amman, in Jordan today. And that's if the water's running, because sometimes the water shuts off because of water shortages, um, then the water that comes out of that tap is a product of uh, American uh, development aid and of American and largely Western technical expertise 
and crafting with Jordanian cooperation and essentially being outsourced by their Jordanian state, the creation and the maintenance of Jordan's entire municipal water sector. Uh, and so here's a state that doesn't have enough water to survive and its entire water sector remains a product of outside development project assistance and today is still largely maintained um, by that outside expertise and where decisions about military salaries, decisions about border patrols and border security, decisions about uh, how expensive will electricity be this month, how expensive is bread, will there be another round of social protest next year because the government has cut back yet again on its subsidies or the government will be forced to raise taxes yet again. All of that determined, it has been determined historically for the last 80 years and continues to be determined today almost on a, on, on a monotonous weekly basis on how much money and generosity Jordan receives from all of its outside donors, partners, patrons, um, and, and friends. And I think, th so again, this is true with many countries in the region, but in the Jordanian case, you get reminded that just the very essence of political life is inextricably tied to far larger forces and powers uh, in the region and beyond the region. Um, it's not a particularly fair situation, uh, but it's the situation that history gifted Jordan with, or perhaps cursed with people better yeah. word. And, and I think to get a handle on these issues, we have to pick cases that embody them. And in Jordan, you could never escape that. I mean, there is no Jordan without understanding the Jordanian linkage with all of its outside allies and enemies and so forth. Um, and those relationships in turn are deeply inflected by what Jordanians want and need. And so in essence, I think those three, kind of in a long-winded way, yeah, those, those three themes are the ones that have um, really made me gravitate towards Jordan as this fascinating case. And now I, I think I would just add a very quick thing, number four, Jordan is a country that is fasting because it, it uh, like I joke with many of my Jordanian friends, it's a country that really has no right to exist. <laughs> right. It's a country that um, was founded with the with, with flourish of a pen by Winston Churchill um, in an afternoon in Cairo, as the apocryphal story has it. I think he was the best one to embellish his own role in it, but he, <laughs> yeah. at least that's a story that he... He, he made having created Jordan with a stroke of a pen in an afternoon in Cairo um, in 1920. Uh, and, and yet over that decade, despite all of its flaws and dependencies and weaknesses, um, no natural resources, no oil, no water, and, and, and ethnocratically cleave society, neighbor to multiple civil wars, party to multiple actual conventional bloody conflicts, uh, has having suffered civil conflict of its own in 1970, being ruled by a quite outmoded form of governance in the form of a ruling monarchy, uh, since parliamentary democracy is still far, far away from Jordanian history, having an undersized economy and having a, a government that still struggles to provide basic public goods at times, like education and water and a functional transportation system. And yet, despite all of that, this is the only country in that neighborhood, in the Levant, if you think about Lebanon and Syria and Iraq, that's never seen regime change, 
that's never seen a revolution consume its, you know, its, its, its regime has never had an actual switch in regime due to some domestic crisis, foreign invasion, or revolutionary paroxysm that has completely reshaped the dynamics of governing institutions. I mean, that's happened in Syria repeatedly. Lebanon has a traumatic experience with its own from the civil war. And Iraq today is a product of completely remaking and shattering the country in the last 20 years. And in Jordan, you have a constancy, which is just shocking. If you were to, if you were a gambling person and you were to put odds, uh, you know, even 70 years ago on which of these countries would be the first to collapse in a pile of self-contradictory kind of political and social and economic problems, I think everyone would pick Jordan first. No one thought that this country would survive this long. And yet here we are talking of Jordan as an oasis of stability. And it's the country that was never designed to be anything more than an afterthought of British geopolitics in the region. And that just, I think for many of us who study the country, that is absolutely fascinating. That something that was made as an afterthought could now be held up as an icon of durability and of resilience in the region. It's it's really fascinating hearing you put it like that. When there's there's so much incongruence, there's this sort of ongoing paradox of of court between the past and the present, with with fears about the future, political, social, economic instability that, that you've touched on in in not only this discussion but also in in your your publications as well. And it's it's fascinating to to think about it like this as an accident, yet a durable accident, if you will. Um, Sean, we've taken up so much of your time already, but I wonder if you can just offer a little bit of, of guidance just for, for the comparativists among us. As someone who's done a lot of comparative work, what, what advice would you give anyone seeking to do comparative work on the Middle East today? Yeah, uh, great, great question. Um, uh, I, I think that there are two two uh, pieces of of guidance. One is um, one is very practical, and one is almost uh, spiritual, or maybe philosophical would be the better word for it. Uh, the practical piece of advice, and this is something I often do tell other people, not just my own uh, doctoral students studying the region, but also freelance journalists who often consult with me before they hit up Jordan for the first time or, or Kuwait, for instance, or Morocco for the first time. Um, uh, sometimes I, I do work with multilateral institutions um, like the World Bank uh, or human rights monitors as well. Um, and I talk to researchers on their end who are about to head to the region for the first time and, 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 and often ask, you know, how to best prepare to make to, to be productive in the region. And so the two general pieces of advice are the following. The first on the practical side is, um, you know, in, in the time you have available and with the resources you have available, acquire as many relevant skills um, as possible. Um, and in this sense, understanding the Middle East is not unlike understanding any, any other um, area or field of inquiry uh, in, 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 the, in the human world today in terms of if you wanted to know, for instance, more about American politics, um, then, you know, the easy way is to turn on CNN uh, or BBC or, or, or uh, Franz Venkat, for instance, and just to hear what people report on a, on a nightly basis. That's knowing something about American politics, but to truly know the rhythms of American politics, 
you have to expend a little bit more resources to read political commentaries, magazines, journals, uh, to commit a significant portion of your time listening to talk shows and podcasts um, and, and, and reading novels integral to American history, for instance, and politics, understanding historical events, going to museums, if you can, for instance, with that they give you a snippet of life about why certain presidential administrations were so vital to the history of the country and why their legacies are so contested, like the Lincoln administration, for instance. You know, these are all things that you would do to become an expert in American politics. Um, you know, the same goes for Middle East politics. Uh, you know, you know, the, you know, mechanically, one can say that to be a good comparativist, to be a good scholar of the Middle East, you should pick up one of the major languages of the region, such as Arabic or uh, Farsi or Turkish or Hebrew. You should spend years of your life studying in the region, buy many, many books in the region, uh, read everything, try to start writing as quickly as possible, familiarize yourself, live in environments that deliberately make you feel uncomfortable so that when you speak to people and, and you interview them, uh, you are stripped of all of your outside privilege and you're forced to interact with them from a, a, a place where you are all equals, not you are a privileged outsider who wants to extract something from a local. I mean, so there are things that we can list mechanically, but I think the, the, the broader overarching thrust that I like to give people on this skills-based practical side is that whatever it takes and whatever you're capable of, do it. So. Yeah. For instance, learning Arabic um, in America is not an easy task. Arabic classes can be very expensive if you take them outside of university. Not all universities offer them. And uh, given the grotesque income inequalities we have in, in, in uh, you know, my country today, it's not reasonable to expect that your average college student uh, will have the resources to fly to the region and enroll in an Arabic language program in Morocco or Kuwait or Jordan, for instance, and learn Arabic like students often do from upper middle income and of upper income backgrounds. So not everyone starts with the same resource space, but insofar that they have some room of action given what they have, uh, the, the practical advice is always maximize everything you can. So sure. if you can learn a little Arabic, it's your due diligence to learn that little Arabic. If you can buy or or, or rent or lend, uh, get lent lent from the library, not three hundred books, but just five books about the Middle East. It is your obligation to do that and to read every single page and to understand uh, all the, the 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 hidden historical nuances of the region. So, I think the the, the easiest way to put this would be. Given the resources you have and given the extent of uh, the knowledge that you were meant to acquire, do the best you can uh, before heading to the region. And once you are in the region, understand that um, you should speak to people and uh, individuals and groups and governments as from a place of from a from a place of in uh, of embedded equality where. You, you are another human speaking to another human <laughs> yeah. engaging in discourse, but you are always aware of your background as an outsider who um, comes from a place of relative privilege. Um, and I think that's my second piece of advice, um, my, my other plank of my kind of debriefing I often give people before they give to the region, uh, before they go to the region, um, the kind of more philosophical understanding of the region um, and 
how they should be good journalists, writers, researchers, students, and observers of it. It's to understand your positionality. Yeah. It's to understand where you come from when you go to a region that most of us classify um, just on a, on a just on, on a flippant basis uh, as a developing region, as a non-Western region. Um, as a region of color, as a region of conflict, as a region of poverty, as a region of dictatorship, et cetera, that when you go to regions like this, um, and I have many colleagues who study, say, conflicts and uh, struggles in other parts of the world as well, from Southeast Asia to South Asia to Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, or Central America, uh, Central Asia. And, and, and this is a theme that often resonates among social scientists who uh, I think have must travel relatively far to do this kind of work. Um, that when you go to these regions, you it, it's I think vital to understand the privilege and the power that you bring simply as an outsider. And the the, the example I give to many of my students who sometimes um, find that difficult to grasp is this. And I say, as most of my students are American, for instance, and I'd say, you know, consider that you can leave America go to a place like Morocco and Jordan, you know, get an entry stamp the moment you arrive with no questions asked, leave whenever you want within 30 or 60 days, having done anything you want in the country pretty much within the, within the scope of the law, come back to America with virtually no questions asked. And then 60 to 90 days later, write everything up as if this were nothing more than a seamless part of your life. No one from Morocco or Jordan could ever imagine doing that in America or to pretty much any country in the Schengen zone in the EU uh, if they don't have a diplomatic visa, for instance. Uh, They have to go through a wrenching visa process where they're interviewed as if they would would be the next terrorist suspect or runaway illegal migrant. They have trouble leaving the country at times. Um, uh, They're often questioned why they want to leave. They have inordinate troubles entering Western countries. They, when they leave Western countries, it's often, you know, it's 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 often done so not having had the best experience, given the unfortunate rising and increasingly endemic levels of racism and I think inequality and xenophobia we see in some quarters in the West today. They return to their countries, and then they're questioned when they return to their countries, what were you doing in America, in New York, or in England, in London, for instance? And all of that hassle reflects, and, and, and these, you know, all of that hassle can happen to someone from a quite upper income background yeah. in a country like Tunisia or Morocco, for instance. And yet, if you come from even a relatively humble, uh, if you are of humble origins and you win a scholarship and you can go to Morocco for one month to study Arabic, uh, it's an EU scholarship, for instance, um, and you come from a very humble background in France, for instance, um, studying in Nice at, 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 a, at, a, at a mid-tier university campus, you still have more privilege than virtually everyone else in Moroccan society in terms of basic uh, uh, rights of entry and exit across international borders. And, you know, it's stories, I, I, I think it's, it's stories and metaphors and, and similes like this that I try to impart upon people <coughs> um, under my advising charge who go to the region that help them grasp that to be a good comparativist and researcher of the region, it's vital to know that, you know, you should 
as much as you can, try to drop all pretense of privilege and power once you enter those these countries, uh, because you're always going to have it. It's always going to be in the room, and it's going to be a fact of life yeah. given the, the the world that we live in. But don't speak as if you own it, and don't speak as if you're, and most of all, don't speak as if you're particularly proud of it. Um, because as researchers, we should not be proud of the privileges we bring. We should try to work around them and try to forget them and pray for a day they don't exist. Mm-hmm. But until then, uh, whatever you do, for God's sake, don't flaunt it as if um, you know you're superior to a local just because you have a passport that most people would kill to have um, in that country, for instance. And so. Yeah. So these are the these are the kind of the general piece of advice I try to give people uh, or advisees, for instance, uh, if they ask questions like, how do I specialize in the region? And after all this exegesis, they just turn around and typically say, OK, let's learn Spanish and go to Latin America instead <laughs> or something. <laughs> but enough go to the region that I, I think um, many of us who are in positions of advising and have people come to the region uh, under our advising charge, we give virtually the same piece of advice and those that take it to heart often become the next generation of scholars and that's what we're particularly proud of and on that positive note sean thank you so much for your time today it's been really wonderful talking to you i think there's been so many rich nuggets of of reflection and and i really love that discussion of positionality i think it's so very important so thank you so much for for your time today i've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you no my pleasure absolutely Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for listening, and until the next time, bye-bye.